You may, for the sermon this morning, you may want to uh, uh, take your own notes or uh, the, uh, fill in the blanks in the, uh, under message notes, and the uh, underlined, the answers will be on the PowerPoint on the screen as, uh, as we do that together today. Let us look to God in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to once again look into your word, your word that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to set aside our plans and activities for the day or our things that we accomplished over the last week, and now to focus on this time around your word and to focus on what your spirit might be saying to us. Help us to listen to the still, small voice, the whisper that comes to us by your word as we share together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Embraced by the divine. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is developing a new way to live. Jesus is developing a lived faith. He is dealing with truth and with life. And as I discussed in my sermon last Sunday, as I shared that this teaching is for today, this teaching is for the here and now, and not some far-off distant future where some would claim it would be easier to live out the Sermon on the Mount at some future time. Matthew wrote about 75 to 80 A.D., and drew heavily on Mark's gospel. Luke then wrote during the first decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. An Aramaic tradition underlies both the Sermon on the Mount and also the Sermon on the Plain, which we find in the gospel of Luke. It's interesting that as we look at Matthew, there are many mountains that take place that Matthew seems to indicate that Jesus uh, taught on the mountain, also went up on a mountain and was ascended from the mountain. And both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, both of those may be collections of the teachings of Jesus that to be used for teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, teaching and instructional purposes of the early church. Both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain may be used for teaching and instructional purposes of the early church. So Jesus is setting up a new order. Jesus is setting up a new way to live. Jesus is confronting head-on the worldly kingdom. Jesus is setting up a different kingdom, and is confronting head-on the worldly kingdom with its power politics, with its wars, with its anger and abuse. Jesus is saying, we have a different way of living. So Jesus' commandment, first of all, is to work at the heart, to have our inner life transformed the transformation of the heart, which then 
results in good works, which then results in the works that God is calling us to do. And the key verse for this teaching is found in Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the teachers of the, the religious law would be what persons today would have as a, as a PhD or at least a master's degree uh, or a, a doctor of divinity degree. They would be highly trained, those religious teachers or the, those scribes. The Pharisees did not have any formal religious training, but they were very pious and very interested in the religion. And the historian Josephus mentions that there were about 6,000 Pharisees, about 6,000 pious laypersons who were checking up on Jesus and to be sure that he was teaching correctly. As Don Augsburger points out, Matthew 5.20 identifies three kinds of righteousness. That of the theologians that, we were to, that I was just talking about a bit ago, the teachers of the law, that of the pious laypersons or the Pharisees, and that of the disciples of Jesus. Those are the three kinds of righteousness. And then the Beatitudes then lay a foundation for a new way of life. These Beatitudes lay a foundation for this new kingdom. For, as Donald Crable called it in, the, in his book by the same title, he called it the Upside-Down Kingdom, which was published in the 1970s. And these run counter to the cultural concepts of Jesus' day, and also, perhaps, in our, not just perhaps, they do run counter to the concepts of the culture of our day. For many persons, it makes no sense as to why we should follow the Beatitudes. So, Jesus began with the Beatitude that we looked at last Sunday. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or the poor in spirit are not the proud. They are the ones who are humble. They are the ones who are concerned about their own sin. The poor in spirit recognize their desperate need for God. Again, quoting Don Augsburger, God gives the kingdom to those who recognize their need and then trust and act. The kingdom is theirs by faith. So we look then at the beatitude for today, the condition, first of all, the condition, Matthew 5, 4, and this is from the message from Eugene Peterson. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one 
most dear to you. And so that's where I get the title of this sermon, Embraced by the Divine. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, or they will be comforted. And these persons who mourn are mourning for the condition of our world. They are mourning for the condition of our nation. We certainly don't need to be reminded and don't need more reminders because we are reminded significantly as we read the newspapers and watch our TV screens, we can see the condition of our nation and the condition of our world. We are aware of police brutality. We are aware of the economic disparity, particularly in our urban centers like our neighboring city of Baltimore. We are aware of the brokenness of our justice system, where persons, because of a different race or a different skin color, are not treated as equals. We are very, very aware of the, because of the images that have come across our TV screens, we're very aware also of the conditions of our world. We are cognizant of the ongoing civil war in Syria, the continued fighting in Afghanistan, and their struggle with the, with the Taliban. And going back then to our own nation, do I need to remind us that we have one of the most permissive abortion policies of any nation in the world? And do we close our eyes to the fact that about 1.2 million abortions were performed in 2008, and that's the most recent year that we have data for, and that amounts to almost 3,322 per day. As believers, we mourn the loss of life. We mourn the loss of life not only as abortion, due to abortion, but we mourn the loss of life because of the brutality and the extermination of thousands and millions of people. Stalin, Hitler, and Idi Amin. Will we ever be able to comprehend, can we comprehend the magnitude of the loss to humanity? Recognizing that those lives have been snuffed out and they can no longer contribute to humanity and to the good of the common good of our society and the common good of our world. This past week, Ann and I were dining at a local restaurant, and I noticed that next to us there was uh, there was a uh, table occupied by four elderly gentlemen. And I don't know what they were discussing at their table. I couldn't hear, and I wasn't trying to hear what they were discussing at their table. But I overheard the one man as these four gentlemen got up 
to leave the restaurant, as one man said to his friend, and I now quote verbatim, I think this world is so screwed up, it is beyond salvage, end of quote. But Dave Buttrick points out, the morning that Jesus is referring to is not merely, quote, clicking a tongue over the bad times in which we live. Such tongue-clicking may be nothing more than self-righteousness of an older generation viewing the young with dismay, end of quote. It's also interesting to note that the Greek word for mourn is the strongest word possible. The word that's used here in the teaching of Jesus is the strongest word possible in that language and designates a deep mourning, a mourning for the dead, for the loss, the, the loss of a loved one, for one who has gone beyond. It means to care deeply and to have compassion and concern and to have godly sorrow for the sin. And like Simeon, we as believers are looking forward to the consolation of Israel for a new time, for a new heaven and a new earth where sorrow no longer reigns. Notice also that the tears of mourners are for everyone. Jeremiah, the prophet, who was known as the weeping prophet, in Jeremiah 31 says, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. And the language of this beatitude recalls a passage from Psalm, in Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest, shouts of joy carrying their sheaves. This beatitude also echoes Isaiah in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell all those who mourn that the fear of the that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it the day of God's anger against their enemies to all who mourn in Israel he will give a crown of beauty for ashes a joyous blessing instead of mourning festive praise instead of despair in their righteousness they will be great oaks that the lord has planted for his own glory great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. And the prophet Jeremiah provides comfort for those who mourn the plight of Israel following the exile. Now they are mourning the condition of their nation. 
They are mourning the condition of their people. And so, in this passage, Jeremiah gives us a clue of what Jesus, the kind of people Jesus is calling blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. It's not only sorrow over personal sin, but it's sorrow for a collective sense of dismay, collective concern of the sins of the, of the nation, the sins of the world. As Richard Rohr and John Feister point out, quote, in the early days of the church, the Greek fathers tended to filter the gospel through the head, ideas of the mind. And in contrast, the Syrian fathers in the early days of the church wanted the body to be involved. The Syrian fathers, in effect, wanted tears to be a sacrament, or we would say to be a part of the expression of worship. They wanted tears, crying, to be part of the church. St. Ephraim goes, to, goes so far as to say that until you have cried, you don't know God, end of quote. Until you have cried, you don't know God. Now let me say a word specifically to the males in the congregation. Are you aware that men die on an average of seven years younger than women? And could it be, just might it be, that one reason for that disparity is the fact that we, that males, are taught in our culture that it's not okay to show emotion, particularly not to cry. Instead, I'm just asking you to ponder that. I'm not sure that there's any empirical research, but that may be part of it. Instead, I would suggest that we teach all children, males and females, that indeed it is okay to express emotion, particularly it is okay to cry. The land of Israel was very prosperous in Jesus' day. But the prosperity was not equally shared among the people. And as in our nation, a wide gap developed between the haves and the have-nots. In fact, in Israel, it was common for a poor farmer or for a day laborer to sell the members of his family as slaves to pay the debts. And Jesus assures the mourners, Jesus assures them that God is paying attention. That consolation, that justice has come in the name of Jesus Christ. And so those who mourn refers to those who are deeply disturbed who are deeply distressed by the status quo, by things as they currently are. Now, they aren't depressed, but these kingdom citizens are concerned enough 
to live a different life and then to do something, how to do something about it, to make life better. To live by kingdom values instead of kingdom, instead of worldly values. And these kingdom citizens show concern for the welfare of persons around them and weep over the evil that comes upon them. The kingdom citizens show concern for the welfare of others. They are moved to compassion, to respond to the needs of others. The citizens of, this, of the Jesus' kingdom are involved in ministry the needs of others. The Mennonite Central Committee or Mennonite Disaster Service or other avenues to work and minister to others. It was Father Damien who was a missionary for 13 years to lepers on one of the islands of Hawaii. And one morning, Father Damien spilled boiling water on his foot, and he felt no pain. And then he realized that he, too, had contracted leprosy. And his concern and his mourning had moved him to action And he was ready, yes, he was ready for this this, um, sacrifice, for this eventuality that he himself and his concern and work with others was indeed willing to sacrifice in this way. When our efforts are confined to study, when our efforts are confined simply to, to discussion, It's not enough. John Driver says, and I have this on the PowerPoint, John Driver, only those who are uncomfortable with the system of values which characterize the present age, those who through deep and painful repentance have radically changed their values and lifestyles, only these will be in a position to experience the authentic consolation of the messianic kingdom. To these belongs the true joy of the Lord. The story about Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller lived during the time of the Nazi government in, in Germany. And he was imprisoned due to his disobedience of following the Nazi instructions. And so one day, as Martin Niemöller, Dr. Niemöller was in prison, a chaplain visited him and asked, why are you here? Why are you not here? Dr. Niemöller responded. To mourn is to show repentance and to show sorrow over sin, and to come to God in repentance of our sins and misdeeds of the past. Oscar Wilde said, no man is rich enough to buy back his past. So while we can have sorrow and repentance, we dare not focus and keep our, and, and obsess about what we did in the past. Instead, God calls us to godly sorrow and repentance, and then we will receive forgiveness. 
going then to the promise. They shall be comforted, or only then can you be embraced by the one dearest to you. There's a direct correlation between the word comfort and the word describing the Holy Spirit as the comforter, where Jesus comes as the comforter by the Spirit of God, by sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings comfort in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss. And we serve a God who will take action and transform the world and turn mourning into joy. Isaiah 49, sing for joy, O heavens, Rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on them in their suffering. And Jeremiah, again quoting from the weeping prophet, Jeremiah 31, the young women will dance for joy and the men, old and young, will join in celebration. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. Now many times I have read from Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. I have shared that at funerals as a comfort to to the family where John says in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. All these things are gone forever. And the writer Jeremiah says, Jesus' sayings in the Sermon on the Mount are not a list of complete regulations for the disciple and not intended to be. Here taught are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world. Jesus is attempting to show what the new life is to be like. So, let me share, in closing, let me share three takeaways, three things that we can grab onto and take away as a result of this sermon. One, Let us reflect, ponder, and mourn. Mourn with tears the condition of our nation and world. And I list some of these. Wars, loss of life, racism, increasing disparity between rich and poor. And number two, let us shed tears for our own sins and come to God in repentance for our own sins and misdeeds of the past. And as we come in repentance and mourning, God forgives and cleanses us from all sin. And then lastly, the last takeaway is to allow our mourning to propel us into action. And I would simply ask, where is God calling you to serve or to volunteer your time? Might it be the Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Disaster Service, might it be at hospice and community care or some other agencies, where is God calling you to serve, to work for the common good?
And how, I would ask in conclusion, how are we doing as living a countercultural life? How are we doing as living as citizens of the upside down kingdom? Are others able to see, are others able to observe that indeed our lives are different because we are followers of Jesus and are members of this different kingdom? For Jesus said, unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you don't know or you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Share in a closing song.